All of us have dads, right? You wouldn't be here if you didn't. Well, I want to start today by talking about my relationship with my dad. So I grew up in a home with a dad who was mostly angry with me. I grew up feeling the weight of disappointment and my dad wasn't happy with me or he was disappointed in me, shamed of me even at times. There were times that I felt like that he was disinterested in me. And as a result, the way that I would actually try to get his attention was I would try to be perfect. I would try to do everything with as much energy and effort as I possibly could so that I could get him to notice me. So, for instance, in Little League, I would, I would stand up to bat and I would grip my bat with as much intensity and as passion as I could. I would look over to see if he was looking at me. I would try to swing for the fences because I wanted him to notice me. But a lot of times I didn't feel like he did. I would help him with uh, mechanic stuff. If you know me, I can't fix anything. So he let me know that often. And he would be like, well, you just hold the flashlight. That was my job. So we would be looking at a socket or whatever doohiggy thing that it is. And I would be trying to hold the flashlight. And for the moment that the, I would get distracted, like butterfly or squirrel or something, and the beam would move off of what I was supposed to be looking at, he would remind me, can't you do anything right? Those types of phrases are things that I heard all throughout my childhood. Can't you do anything right? All that stuff. I remember being eight years old, laying awake at night, trying my best not to move because I didn't want my dad to wake up and come in angry with me um, because I woke him up. I felt like I was always falling short with my dad and that I never made it past being his biggest disappointment. I didn't actually hear my dad tell me that he loved me until I was 18 years old, about two steps away from getting on a plane to go to basic training and with no way that I could possibly do anything with this statement. I'm like, all right, see you later. <laughs> like, you waited till that moment. So when I would go to church and when I would hear preachers and pastors and Sunday school teachers say that God is Father, well, I didn't get that. I didn't understand what it meant for God to be Father because of my dad and the relationship that I had. And what I realized as I got older is that my dad actually defined how I related and viewed God. I realized that a lot of us actually would say that our dads, our human fathers, define how we understand and relate to our Heavenly Father. And my view of God was deeply defined by my dad. The same ways that I tried to get my dad to notice me is the same way I tried to get God to notice me. I tried to be perfect, and every time that I fell short, I heard God saying, See, Kendall, what good are you? You're not good for anything. Those are the types of things I would hear when I thought about God. Now, as we're sitting here today, how many would say that you've been shaped by your dad? I think all of us would say that. In a lot of ways, we can say better or worse, kind or unkind, present or absent, that our dad has had a major or profound impact on our life. But what I want to highlight is, is that our dad has also had an impact on the way that we view God and the way that we relate with him. So, for instance, if you had a dad who was harsh with you, who is impatient with you? Is it any wonder that as an adult, you've struggled to relate with God? You've struggled thinking God would take the time to listen to you, or if he did, he would be angry or frustrated with you. If you had an affectionate dad who wanted to bring you up in his arms and bounce you on his lap and, and welcome you and smile over you, well, guess what? It's probably easier to relate with God as dad. 
If your dad spent all of his time working and he was never home, is it any wonder why you probably struggled with the feelings like God is distant? God's not available. He's up in heaven doing all of his God stuff, but he doesn't have any time for you. See, our dads define how we view and relate with God. I grew up feeling like a disappointment. There's no wonder I ended up feeling like God was disappointed with me. Now, don't get me wrong. There's no earthly father who's perfect. And when we think about God as father, every single dad in this room has had a profound impact, even though they're not perfect. But what I want us to do today is I want us to actually see God as father. I want us to experience healing. So if you come in with baggage from your childhood, well, join the club. I'm right there with you. But what I want us to do is I want healing to happen from the scriptures. I want God's word to breathe life into us to show us who he really is as father. You guys down for that? So let's look at Luke 15. And we're going to look at 11 through 19. No matter what relationship you've had with God or your father coming into today, we're going to look at Luke 15 and pray God does something. If you don't have it, it's going to be behind you. It says in Luke 15, He also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. So what this guy's saying is, I'm not ready for you to, I'm not ready to wait on you to die. I just want the stuff now. Basically, you're better dead to me. That's what this guy's saying to his dad. And guess what? He distributed the assets to him. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had. And he traveled to a distant land where he squandered his estate in foolish living. And after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Not a very honorable position. And he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat? And here I am dying of hunger. So I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. Now, this is one of the most recognizable parables in all of scripture. Here we have Jesus who's trying to teach people how to understand God as father. And you've really got two types of people who are listening to this parable. 2,000 years ago when Jesus is giving this message, he's talking to two groups of people. One of them is the Pharisees who believed that you could work your way back to God. You could scratch and you could claw your way through religion and through performance and through obedience and through white knuckling it. And then on the other side, you've got a group of people called the sinners. The Pharisees actually named them the sinners. That's where we get the word sinner from. People who felt like they were outcast, people who felt like they were dejected, people who felt like they were too far to be rescued from God. Here you have two groups of people who both have a wrong view about God. And because of that wrong view, both of them are experiencing relationship strains with their father. But yet both of them are wrong. Both of them are considered Israel. And if we look at Israel in the book of Exodus, so if you turn left and go a long way, you'll get to Exodus. 
In Exodus, it says that God says that Israel is his beloved firstborn child. God actually chose this nation, it says, not because they were the strongest, but because they were the weakest. And he intentionally defined his relationship with them as one of a daddy, one of a daddy relating to his kids. So Israel's purpose was to be tenderhearted, was to be excited to be in relationship with this dad, this wonderful father. But they got it wrong all throughout the Old Testament. And eventually this wrong view kind of came to power in this group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed that if you just obey and obey and obey, then God would have to accept you. At the time of Jesus, they actually believed that if every single person would obey for just one day, then God would return and set up his kingdom. So they heaped massive amount of shame on the people, trying to motivate them to obey. And it just left the people feeling dejected and disappointed and like God didn't love them. They believed that God was primarily concerned with all of his kids obeying all of the rules. But in the midst of that, they missed relationship. One massive problem with that is that they became enamored with law-keeping and not with the law-giver. They became enamored with their performance, but not in the one who loves them and longs to bring them in a relationship. They missed God. And that wrong idea of God actually caused them to treat others with injustice, to treat others as if God was angry with them, and they buried the people under a weight of religiosity. They left most people in the country feeling like they could never measure up to God. They left the people feeling like that God only wanted them to obey all of the rules all of the time. And who in the world could do that? How could you possibly please him? If one command is broken, then you are broken. They left them believing that they were not just being a disappointment. They were a disappointment. See, that's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says that I've done something wrong. Shame says I am something wrong. And these Pharisees left these people not only feeling like they disappointed God, but they were, in fact, a disappointment as a person. Helpless and incapable. And this wrong view about God infiltrated and infected every fabric of their society so that some people were spinning their wheels trying to earn God's favor And some were throwing their hands up, believing they never could. That happens today. That happens today. When you think about God today, when you think about God as dad, what emotions rise up to the surface in your heart? Do you believe God is patient? Do you believe God is kind? Do you believe God is happier with you when you're obeying him? Do you believe that he's angry with you when you fall short? I allowed my wrong view of God as father to dictate my relationship with him for way too long. And that's why I'm excited today that we're not just going to talk about the wrong view. We're going to talk about who God really is as father in this passage. So that hopefully as we walk away from today, none of us will, when we close our eyes, think God is angry with me. None of us, when we close our eyes, will see the the face that's disappointed anymore. We will see the God who is excited to be in relationship with us, the God who is happy, the God who says, well done. So if you will, let's look down at verse 18 now. It says, I'll get up and I'll go to my father 
And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he's got a plan. He says, make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and he threw his arms around his son's neck and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer be worried, worthy to, call, to be called your son. But the father would have nothing to do with that. He said to his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it so that we can celebrate. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. So they begin to celebrate. Now, this passage teaches us three things that we need to know about God as Father. Three things. The first one is that the Father sees. The Father sees. Here this man has done so much to disappoint the Father. He's wasted all of his blessings. He's taken everything that the father gave him and he squandered it on wild living. He's walked away from the father and he's done unspeakable things so that if anyone should disqualify himself as a child, it's this guy. So in a moment of weakness, he doesn't even pretend that he's going to be a son. He has no aspirations that he can come back to this father as a child. He draws up a restitution plan. And the restitution plan is make me like one of your hired workers instead. He has no belief that he can be a son. He's way too far gone to be a son, to be a child. He assumes that the father was done with him. He assumes that the father was finished with him, that he had written him off. He'd done way too much to be forgiven. But that's not the father we see in the story. The father we see is not finished with him, far from finished with him. He hasn't moved on with his life. It's like he's standing there looking out across the landscape. However long the sun was gone, he's straining his eyes to look. And as soon as he sees him, he doesn't just see him, he runs to him. We have a father who sees exactly where we are. All the problems, all the sins, all the failures. And yet he acts and he runs and he, he notices us and he pursues us. That means we're not too far gone for this father. Can you relate to a God who runs after you? Can you relate to a God who is seeking you? Can you relate to a God who sees you and who notices you? And this is hard. I get that because of our backgrounds and the things that we bring to our relationship with God. When I was 13 years old, after years of a strained relationship with my dad, I moved out. Now, I didn't take my 13-year-old inheritance and go squander it on wild living. I moved out to my grandma's house, which was pretty awesome compared to what I was dealing with. It was about 75 yards down the street, side by side with my dad. But thinking about a God who sees and a God who notices and a God who's standing there looking and waiting, it's hard to identify with that. I lived at my grandma's house for five years and that entire time I did not feel like my father noticed me. I saw him two days a year on Thanksgiving and Christmas. 
And it felt weird and it felt awkward and I did not feel pursued and I did not feel noticed. So when I think about God noticing me, that's hard to accept. But this is what scripture teaches us. This is what scripture tells us about a God who is seeking after us. The second thing I want to show you is that he doesn't just see you. He doesn't just notice you. He actually is moved to action. This father acts. It says, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. He is filled with emotions like gratitude and thankfulness and love and empathy. And he runs to him. And guess what? Middle Eastern men did not run at this time. To be a landowner in Palestine was a dignified thing. To be a patriarch was something that was highly dignified. You would never run. To run, you'd have to pull up your robes and you'd have to show your legs. And Middle Eastern men would not do that. Children would do that. Women would do that, but never a father. But here we have a father who does. We have a father who's willing to shame himself even to pursue you. When the son says, give me your inheritance, he's saying you're dead to me. But yet here's a father filled with grace and filled with love and filled with empathy and mercy. But what if I told you that it's not just a story? What if I told you that you have that kind of father in God right now today? What if I told you that God is not angry with you because of that decision? Would you believe it? What if I told you that God is not disappointed in you because of that past event? What if I said God has not written you off at all? He's been waiting on you to run back into his arms. That's the kind of God that we have. But it's even better than that because we also see that he doesn't just see and he doesn't just act, but he also restores. This father restores It says in verse 21 that he ran and he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and put sandals on his feet. And then bring out the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and now he's alive again. This son of mine was lost and now he is found and they begin to celebrate. See, this father not only runs out and welcomes his child, he brings him back at his own expense. See, this son had spent everything. All of the inheritance that was coming to him was gone. He spent it all. So to bring him back was going to cost the father. To bring him back was going to be a tremendous personal expense. But the father says, I'm not going to wait for you to clean your life up to bring you back. I'm not going to wait for you to work off your debt and pay me back. I'm bringing you back. He tries to roll out his restitution plan and the father will have none of it. Father says, I'm not going to wait. I'm not even going to wait for you to take a shower. I know you've been hanging out with pigs, but I'm going to put my robe on you. I'm not going to wait. I'm going to bring you back. 
So the father throws the most expensive party that he's ever thrown. He brings out his own, his own robe and he puts it on the son, which is a symbol of the fact that of honor and status in the, in the home. He puts a ring on his finger, a symbol of power and privilege. He even puts sandals on his feet, which might not seem like a big deal. But slaves in that culture and servants in that culture could not wear sandals. They were so poor they couldn't afford it. So the father's saying, you might think you're going to work your way back to me, but you're not. I'm going to give you sandals. This God's providing for every single need. This father's providing for this need. And he is, he even slays the fattened calf. Now, again, we go to Market Basket and we pick up our meat and it's not that big of a deal. But for these people, a fattened calf was a huge deal. Because when you slay the fattened calf for food in a culture that rarely ever ate meat, you're not only slaying that calf, but you're slaying all of its offspring that could help you on the farm that could help you with milk production or that could help you with uh, different chores around the farm so that you're really, to kill the fattened calf is to kill multiple generations. And it's incredibly expensive, lavish even. A family may not ever slay a fattened calf in their entire life. And if they did, it would be because of an incredibly honored guest. But here the son, the son who was in rebellion comes home and the father throws a lavish feast. It's highlighting the fact that this is about a celebration. See, this parable is tied to two other parables that all highlight the fact of celebration. Here you have a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep to go to the one, and when he finds it, he celebrates. You have a woman in the second parable in Luke 15 that searches for a coin, and she calls all of her neighbors into her home, and they celebrate together when that one lost coin is found. Here you have a father who has a lost son waiting for him to return. And when he does, he throws the greatest feast he's ever thrown. What I want you to hear from that is that this is not just a story 2,000 years ago that heaven actually broke out in praise when you came to Christ. That God has been searching for you and when he found you, he celebrated. This is the character of our father. When you think about God as dad, do you see the God who is rejoicing or do you see the God who's upset at you? You see, angels actually break out in praise when someone comes to know Jesus Christ. All of heaven erupts. This is the kind of God we see in this passage. Now the question is, how can we go on believing that he's angry with us? How can we go on believing that he's disappointed in us if he would go to such lavish expense for us? If he would send his only son for us? See, maybe you're feeling far from God today. Maybe you're feeling disappointed or like God is disappointed in you. Maybe you're feeling like you're too far gone to be forgiven. But may I ask you please to set aside your feelings because your feelings have lied to you long enough. Your feelings do not dictate how God feels about you. Scripture dictates how God feels about you. Will you make a commitment today to set aside your feelings and to let Scripture rewrite who God is as Father? Will you let Scripture redefine your wrong beliefs and refuse to carry them outside of this room? Will you lay them down today? Will you even set aside the baggage that you brought from a, from a childhood? Look, I get that we all come wounded out of our childhood. We all have things that are bugging us, but this is the type of father we have who can redefine everything, who can take the most lost and the most depraved and bring them back into the family and can celebrate once they're there. That's us. 
God is a good, good father. Now, Jesus told this parable not just to tell a nice story. He told us to teach us about who the father is. See, unlike the father in this parable, God's not sitting up in heaven waiting on you to return. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and rescue you. Unlike the older brother in this parable who is angry that the father is spending all of his money, because remember, everything now is the older brother's, Unlike that older brother, Jesus is a true and faithful older brother who set aside all of his riches, who set aside all of the majesty and all of the wealth from heaven, and he came and he was poor among us. He gave everything on the cross so that we could be brought into the family. We have a good and a true older brother in Christ. First John says, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. How could God be angry with you if he's willing to give you his son? Unlike the older brother, again, he brought us back. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, that he might bring us back to God. That means you don't have to earn your way back. That means he has made the way. He has provided the path. If you're a Christian and you have wandered from God, don't worry because you've got an advocate in Jesus Christ. If you will turn to him, he'll bring you back to the Father and the Father's ready to celebrate once you get there. If you're not a Christian and you've been looking for meaning and purpose and significance, there is one way to God and that's through Jesus Christ. Turn your life to Jesus today. Do not let your feelings, do not let the world, do not let whatever self-help plan that you have adopted try to steal the joy of knowing this good father. Turn your life to Jesus. Do not leave before you've got this matter settled. Because he wants to rescue you and he wants to restore you and he wants to give you a good purpose Turn to Jesus. The last thing I want to share with you is this, this parable is a metaphor for our life as Christians. You see, Jesus, the true and older brother, comes and rescues us and he brings us back. But you know how the Bible ends? The Bible ends in Revelation with a feast. The Bible ends with a celebration. The Bible ends with the most lavish party that God ever threw because that's the day when we meet God. That's the day when we're brought back into the family. So that is what we are looking for forward to the day when we meet God and he celebrates. That's the God we serve. That is the father that he is. This passage means so much to me. This passage was the passage that led me to the Lord. I was a very moral person trying to earn my way to God because of the relationship I had with my dad. And God broke through and he taught me grace through this passage. That book out on the shelf, The Prodigal God, is a great resource. That's the one that really taught me about grace. And what's interesting about that is that I can no longer be angry at my dad. I don't carry the hurt anymore. I don't carry the pain because if God went to such great lengths to forgive me, how can I not forgive my dad? If God has shown me grace, how can I not extend grace to him? And if God has been such a good father to me, how can I not be compelled to be a good dad? Now, I'm not perfect. But my kids, at least, are not going to have my story. And every single day, I'm trying to grow into that. You see, the fatherhood of God has taught me so much about my life. What will the fatherhood of God teach you? How will the fatherhood of God come to bear on your life and your walk with God? Because you have a good father. And you are a dearly, 
loved child. Let's pray.